when you came in tonight or on your seats, you should have this booklet saying, Knowing the Holy God. This is a, for our sermon series on Exodus. Uh, for those who like taking notes, use this. Um, at the beginning of each week, there is some questions. And our hope is that you would come to church each Sunday eager to hear God speak. Uh, there are big chunks of Bible being read. Uh, and so if you could sort of look at these questions before you come to church on a Sunday, read the chapters before you come, uh, answer these questions before you come, and come expectantly and eagerly uh, expecting God to speak to you th- tonight. So please use these books. Um, we're also going to kick off with our, our Holman Bible tonight. So if you haven't got a Bible, can you just raise your hand and I will get uh, Stephen and Ben at the back to bring Bibles to you. Just raise your hand. Because we're going to do an overview of Exodus, so you'll need a Bible in your hand tonight. And once you've got a Bible, I'll hand over to Peter, who's going to read from Exodus chapter 5. that you all have a Bible, you'll find this, as Paul said, rather large slab of Exodus on page 52. It's uh, Exodus chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous and you'd stop them from working. And that day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it for their slackers. That's why they're crying out, Let's go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on them. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, This is what Pharaoh says. I'm not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servant, and yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers, slackers. That's why you're saying, let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you. 
but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you've made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in his hand to kill us. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people and why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's caused trouble for this people, but you haven't delivered your people at all. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you are going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. And then God spoke to Moses telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labour of the Egyptians and free you from your slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labour of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labour. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. The second reading is from Romans chapter 15. It's on page 1047 of the um, Church Bibles. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through the endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus, 
so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you want uh, Peter Bloodhurst to read Exodus every week? I want to draw your attention to a verse that Jane just read to us from, from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. I think it's an extraordinary verse. Whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. You see what that verse means? Look at it again. It says, whatever was written in the past... So all the historical events that were written down, everything that happened thousands of years ago were written down for you and for me because God wanted to instruct us, to teach us. Not just to fill our heads with the information, not like a history course. What was the purpose? So that we, that's you and me, may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. I think if you understand that verse, it will change the way you read your Bibles. Because when you open the scriptures, you are supposed to say, God has kept this and God has written this down to instruct me. Do you ever, do you ever think about why God bothered to record you know, the flood and the plagues and the burning bush and all these events of history. Why did God write that down? Why have we got it here in the Bible? It's because God cares about us enough and God loves us enough to want us to grow and to be encouraged and to press on in our faith. So I reckon many of us read the Bible a bit like a self-help book. They flick through the pages of Scriptures, find a verse that might encourage me, or, or we read it like a history book. Some of us are here, there's kind of these, the nerds who just want to have our, our, our brains full of facts. And we love the facts, we love the figures, we love the history. But we don't bother to love the God behind the history. And whenever we open the Bible, we're supposed to say, with all humility, Lord, teach me. Lord, instruct me. Lord, encourage me. Lord, help me to press on in my faith. And I reckon if you understand Romans 15, verse 4, you will read the Bible differently. Read the Bible with a God-focused view rather than a me-focused view. And that's what I want to do in the book of Exodus over the next nine weeks, just have a God-focused view, not a me-focused view. You ever heard of a man called Oswald Chambers? Anybody here heard of Oswald Chambers? He wrote a devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. Extraordinary man. He was a pastor. He called himself a reluctant pastor. He was the son of a pastor who never wanted to go into the ministry but ended up in the ministry. He died aged 43, which is humbling because that's my age. Uh, on his death, he had no works published, but his widow, called Biddy, decided that his works should be heard, and so she set about getting them published. And we have benefited from those, those works today. But, you know, just before he died, he was talking with a bunch of other pastors, and, and, and someone said to him, 
your faith is so strong. And it was strong. Because if you know Oswald Chambers' life, he had a really tough life. And I know that some of us here think that our lives are tough, but he had a very tough life. Physical health, mental health, financial issues, beatings, persecution, suffering for being a Christian. He, He had a tough life. And someone said, your faith is so strong. And he said something like this. He said, my faith may be strong, but that's because my God is so big. My faith might be strong, but that's because my God is so big. And Oswald Chambers was a man who had a huge view of God. He spent his entire life just getting to know God better. He wasn't satisfied with a a shallow view of God. He wasn't satisfied with a one-dimensional view of God. He actually plumbed the depths of the Scriptures to know God better. And do you ever meet those people where their faith seems to be so strong? No matter what life throws at them, no matter what hardships they go through, they seem to have this this rock-solid faith. Why is that? It's because they know God. And they plumb the depths of God's character. And that's what I want to do in Exodus, just plumb the depths of God's character. Because I want you and I want me to have this rock-solid faith. Not a a one-dimensional faith, not a shallow faith, but a deep faith. So that you will will face the storms of life and the troubles of life with this rock-solid confidence in who God is. Do you want to take that journey with me through Exodus? What I want to do tonight is a bit different, not focus on one particular chapter. I'm going to do an overview of the whole of Exodus. That's 40 chapters in about 20 minutes. So put the seatbelt on. The first thing you learn about God is in chapters 1 to 2, and you learn that God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God really does keep his promise. After trust God is faithful to his promises, even when you can't see what he's up to. I just wonder whether there might be some people here tonight who just need to hear that one thing. You need to know that God is trustworthy even when you can't see what he's up to. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus begins where Genesis left off. So Joseph is friends with the king of Egypt and all the brothers are safe and they're rescued from the famine But things can change very quickly in life. Do you know that? Things can change overnight. Look at verse 6. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful. They increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them. But things can change very quickly. Verse 8, a new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let's deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And so God's people are living in Egypt, a foreign land under this oppressive despotic ruler called Pharaoh. 
And if you read Exodus 1 and 2 through a human lens, these will be chapters of human suffering and human oppression and human disappointment and frustration. God's people are in a, a labor camp. God's people are doing hard labor. Your slackers, your slackers produce these bricks with no straw. And they're being beaten and they're being threatened and they're being mocked. And then there's this kind of ethnic cleansing that happens. Chapter 1, verse 16, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they, give, as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. It's ethnic cleansing on the scale of Rwanda or Auschwitz or Cambodia. Let's wipe out these Israelites. Now put yourself in this situation. You're a believer. You trust the God of the Bible. And yet your life is under threat. You're being physically beaten. You feel totally abandoned and you have nothing. Can you imagine that? It's not hard to imagine for many Christians in Syria or many Christians in Uganda or in Ghana or in Lebanon or Malaysia today suffering for their faith. But what's their question? Has God forgotten me? Is God powerless? Is God able? Let's be honest. When we suffer just a little tiny bit, don't you ask those questions? When you suffer just a bit in this life, don't you just ask questions like, has God forgotten me? Is God powerless? Where is God in all this? Flick over to chapter 2, verse 23. Let's let's see through the the lens of God, not the lens of man. 2, verse 23, after a long time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God took Notice. I love those verbs. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God took notice. And and it's not as though God suddenly woke up one day and said, oh yes, I've forgotten about my people. He's always been remembering, he's always been seeing them. Because let's reread chapters 1 and 2 through the lens of God. 1 verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful just as God said they would. 1 verse 19, the midwives come with this pathetic excuse about the Hebrew women who give birth very vigorously. And verse 20, so God was good and the people multiplied and became numerous. And God was at work because he's saving his man called Moses through this papyrus basket that's placed in the river Nile. And the word for the basket is actually ark. An ark carrying God's man through the waters, and God's at work. And God arranges things so that Pharaoh's daughter just so happens to call Moses' mother to look after the child. And it's such an important start to the book because it forces us to think about God because God is not absent and God does not forget and God does see and God does hear. Do you know that about God? I think many of us see our lives a bit like um, a game of Jenga. You know that game with Jenga? 
with the wooden blocks and you take a, a block of wood out and you, you build this tower and the, the taller the tower gets, the more precarious it gets and you're sitting there thinking, I hope I'm not the next person to take out that block from the block of Jenga because the whole thing might come tumbling down. And we see life like that. Oh, one catastrophic event and my whole life would come crashing down around me as though God isn't in control and as though God doesn't know that and God can't see that and God doesn't hear that. God is faithful. He's not blind. He does see our suffering. He does know our pain. God isn't deaf. He can hear us when we cry out to him. God doesn't leave us. God never forgets us. And you've got to learn that most simple truth about God, that he's always faithful, even when you cannot see what he's up to. When you're retrenched, he knows that. When you're diagnosed with cancer, he knows that. When your plans don't work, he knows that. When you're treated harshly, he knows that because God sees and God hears and God remembers. And maybe that's that one truth to take home tonight. The second aspect of God's character is his judgment. And I know that we don't like this about God, but it shines through Exodus. Just flick over to chapter 6. 6 verse 28, the stories of the plagues. Uh, they're stories that we teach in our kids' church, and we love them. You know, the, 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 the Nile turned to blood, the, the plague of the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the livestock and the, the disgusting boils and the hailstones from heaven and the swarms of locusts. We love teaching these stories to our kids. But did you know that the plagues are actually stories of God's judgment? See, opposing God is a monumentally foolish thing to do. And that's what Pharaoh does. 6 verse 28. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh, I am God. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. Now Moses is a bit scared. He says, I'm such a poor speaker. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord answered Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh, so he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh won't listen to you, but I'll put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So so forget your pictures of a 25-year-old hunk of a man like the Prince of Egypt. This is an 80-year-old man who's bringing a message of judgment to Pharaoh. And if you read these chapters, Pharaoh stands opposed to God. He says, who is this God? I don't know God. Why should I trust in him? And you kind of got like a, a boxing match happening in chapters 6 to 11. So you've got Pharaoh in the red corner. You've got Yahweh in the blue corner. And as soon as I say that, you're thinking, what a stupid boxing match that is. I mean, who, who would put themselves up against God? Would you ever do that? And Pharaoh says, I, I will not let my people go. And so, so God goes, punch, take, take a plague of blood in the Nile. But Pharaoh doesn't listen. And so he goes, punch, take a plague of frogs over the land. But Pharaoh won't listen. 
So punch, take a, a plague of gnats and a plague of flies and a plague of livestock and let's cover the people in boils and let's, let's storm hailstones on the nation. But still Pharaoh does not listen. And these are not kids' stories. They are pictures of God's white-hot wrath against people who stand opposed to him. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And it's a monumentally foolish thing to think that you can oppose God. But lots of people do it. Think they know better than God. Living without God, ignoring God. God is a God of judgment. And perhaps if we took that a bit more seriously, we might be bolder in our evangelism. And perhaps if we understood the terrible wrath of God, we might just appreciate how remarkable his deliverance is. Because that's my third point, that God redeems his people. God really does rescue those who shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Turn to perhaps the most famous chapters in Exodus, the Passover and the Red Sea. Turn to chapter 12. The context here is that God has told his people to, to cook a meal of roast lamb and bitter herbs and to, to put the, la- the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Because chapter 12, verse 12, I, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute these terrible judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, can you imagine Egypt at night? Remember, this is history. This is not fiction. This is not a movie. This actually happened. Can you imagine being in Egypt that night where you cooked the meal? You're sitting around the dinner table. You put the blood on the doorpost. What are you going to be doing that night? I'll tell you where I'm going to be. I'm going to be holding Sam, my firstborn, for the dear life. And I'll be praying, God have mercy. God have mercy. God forgive me. God have mercy. God pass over me. And as I sit there that night, as I hear the wailing and the screaming as babies are killed, I'll be praying and and clinging on to Sam, going, God have mercy, God have mercy, God forgive me. Can you imagine the, the absolute joy the following morning when you wake up? You probably wouldn't sleep, so the absolute joy was you've had no sleep, but but your son is alive. And wouldn't you be praising God, saying, thank you, God, that you passed over. Thank you, God, that you've saved us. Because that's what God's deliverance is about. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the white-hot anger of God. But if we shelter under the blood, he passes over. His wrath is turned away, and we do not get what we deserve. And you can do the biblical theology, can't you? It's not hard. 12 verse 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Those who shelter under the blood of Jesus, those who come to the cross of Jesus and shelter under his blood that was shed for you, we stand secure and safe and certain that God's wrath has been passed over 
and we stand forgiven. To be redeemed, to be delivered, it is the, the beautiful news of the gospel. Now let me ask you, what did the Israelites do to deserve redemption? What did they do? Nothing. All they did was took God at his word, believed him, did what he said. What, what do you and I do to deserve redemption through Christ? Nothing. Just take God at his word when he said those who come to the cross, those who shout in the blood will be forgiven. Just take him at his word. And we stand here tonight redeemed and saved. That's our God. He judges and yet he redeems. He delivers. He saves. Chapter 15 is a turning point in the book. It's the, the first song in the Bible. We've sort of sung it a bit tonight. And then we turn over to the end of chapter 15 and we learn another lesson about God. And this is one that I find sort of probably most uncomfortable. It exposes my human heart and how sinful I really am. And this truth is that God provides, so stop grumbling. Let me read from chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led the Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur, and they journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. Now stop there. They've just seen God part the Red Sea. They've just seen God do this amazing miracle with water. But they have no water. What do you think they should do at this point? You tell me. Call out to God. God, provide for us. God, you know our needs. And they came to, to Marah, verse 23, but they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And what should they do? They should, they should call out to God and say, God, you just parted the Red Sea. Of course you can turn this, this bitter water into drinkable water, but they don't. They do what we all do in verse 24. They, they grumbled. What are we going to drink? And so Moses cries out to God on their behalf. And the Lord provides. He shows a tree and they threw the tree into the water and it becomes this beautiful drinkable water. And you're thinking, okay, it's just a one-off, you know. They were just a bit forgetful. How foolish they were. No, chapter 16. A few days later, verse 2, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness because this time they have no food. And the Israelites said to them, if only we'd died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread that we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And God provides again. And surely they've learned the lesson, you know. If you're in need, instead of grumbling, instead of complaining, what should you do? Call out to God. But they don't. Chapter 17. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin and moving from the one place to the next according to the Lord's commands. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And so they called out to God. Is that what it says in verse 2? 
No, they complained, give us water. Why are you complaining, Moses says? Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're extraordinary chapters. And, and as, I, as I read them, I'm thinking, surely they can't be that stupid. Surely they've seen God provide, and God provide water, and God provide food, and God provide everything. So why do they keep complaining? And then I look at my own heart, and I realize that's what I do every day. Rachel and I have been praying for two very specific things for the past 18 months, daily for the last 18 months. We've been crying out to God. Uh, last Saturday morning, within a space of about two to three hours, both of those prayers were, were clearly answered with a no, not, or not yet. And I was devastated. I was heartbroken. So what did I do? I cried out to God. No, I didn't. I whinged and complained and grumbled and moaned. What should I have done? Cry out to God and ask. Because God knows our needs and God will provide. I'm not saying he'll give you what you want or what I want. My wants might not be what he's going to give me. But he will give me what I need to take him at his word. The fifth thing we learn about God is that he's with his people in his covenant relationship. He said in chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. It's that personal, intimate relationship with God. So turn over to chapter 20, where God gives these commandments. He says in chapter 20, verse 3, don't have other gods. Verse 4, don't make idols. Verse 7, don't misuse my name. Verse 8, keep the Sabbath. Verse 12, honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't cover your neighbor's house. And then he spends four chapters addressing more complex issues, like what do you do if someone steals from you, or what do you do if someone lies to you, or how do you care for the vulnerable and the needy? And as you read these chapters, you're not supposed to think, oh, the Bible's full of rules. Our God is just a slave driver who wants us to keep rules. You're supposed to say, our God loves us enough to give us the rules. You see, Exodus 20 are not given so that you and I can earn our relationship with God. They're given so we can enjoy our relationship with God. He's already rescued them. He's already redeemed them. They are his people. They're his treasured possession. And God is kind of saying, this is how much I love you. I love you enough to show you the best way to live. I love you enough to show you how to enjoy life with me. So here's my rules. I hope you understand that. It's not keep my rules and then you can be my people. It's because you are my people, please keep my rules because I want you to enjoy life. And again, Many of us need to hear that, that God is not this ruler who is trying to uh, dampen our enjoyment. He's a God who wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. So he gives us the rules. And so once he's given us all the rules, we're these perfect people, are we? 
and we keep the rules every day. Is that right? No. And the next aspect of God's character is that he, he forgives us. And the book of Exodus contains what is probably the most monumental stuff up in human history. If you think you've stuffed it up in this room tonight, we're about to read something that will make you feel much, much better. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. So, so, God is, so Moses is up the mountain. Moses is meeting with God, having a one-on-one with God. And the people are down the mountain. And what are they doing? Chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to Aaron, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And Aaron replied to them with a verse which verifies that men can wear earrings. He says, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people, men and women, took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold that was supposed to be given for the tabernacle, and what did they do with it? They made an image of a calf. And they said, Israel, this golden calf is your God, and this golden calf brought you up from the land of Egypt. And you're thinking, how stupid are they? God has rescued them, God has provided them, God has been faithful to them. But, but because God is a bit slow, and because God seems a bit distant from them at this particular moment, let's just do our own thing and make our own God and go our own way. And again, you'd never do that, would you? When God seems a bit slow and God seems a bit distant, and you'd never say... I'll just do my own thing and worship my own God and seek satisfaction and pleasure from this particular thing in life. You wouldn't do that, would you? We do it all the time. In chapters 32 to 34, these great chapters of God is angry and Moses prays, and what is God going to do? Is God going to wipe them out? No, God forgives. Because that's the character of God. Exodus 34, verse 6. What does the name Yahweh mean? 34 verse 6, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations and forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion and sin. And do you know that about your God? There are always consequences for your sin, but God will forgive you. There are always consequences, but God does forgive you. It doesn't matter how monumental your stuff-up is. If you come under the blood of Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, then you stand here tonight forgiven, washed, cleansed, declared not guilty. And I, I stress that because some people here who I talk to seem to carry this sort of baggage of guilt around with them, thinking, I've done this one thing which God can't forgive me for. Whatever it is, leave it at the foot of the cross and trust that God has forgiven you. And the last thing about God is that God is present. The holy God longs to dwell with his people. That's how the book ends in chapter 40. You've got five chapters of instructions to the tabernacle. You've got five chapters of constructing the, the tabernacle. 
And look how it ends in chapter 40, verse 33. Moses set up the surrounding courtyard for the tabernacle and the altar and hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard so Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and it was far inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire household of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. And this cloud filled with the glory of the Lord, is a picture that God never leaves his people. That God's always with his people, they're never alone. It's a picture that that, that God is holy, that he is glorious, that he is perfect, that he is other. You can't just waltz into the presence of God. That's why you've got the tabernacle with all this gold and silver and purple and yarns and, and curtains. You can't just waltz into the holy God's presence. You should do that with fear and with trembling, because he is holy. And yet he lives with us. He dwells with us. He never leaves us. 24-7, God's with you. So how do you know that? Do you want to hand over your, your gold earrings or your gold rings or your purple yarns tonight and let's build another tabernacle so God might be with us? How do you know that God never leaves you and God's always with you? What did Jesus say when he stepped into the world? John chapter 1. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the word. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us because God now dwells with us through Jesus. Oh, but Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He's not with me today. What does Jesus say when he left the earth? I'm always with you and I'll send my Holy Spirit who will dwell in you and live in you. And if you're here tonight as someone who's sheltered in the blood of Jesus, it's not just that you're redeemed, it's not just that you're forgiven, it's that the Holy God actually dwells in you and lives with you, and he never leaves you, and he never forsakes you. See, I'm excited to preach Exodus, because we're going to do theology. And theology is not a dirty word. We're going to study God, and we're going to see how big God is. We're going to plumb the depths of what it really means for God to be faithful and God to be present and God to provide and God to redeem us and God to forgive us. And we're going to do that not so we can sit here and fill in our little notebooks and have a better uh, knowledge of God. We're going to do that because like Oswald Chambers, I want you to say, my faith is so strong because my God is so big. And I want you and I want me to be people of great faith because we know how great our God is. And that's my prayer for this church. Let me pray. Yahweh, you are compassionate and gracious slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth.
forgiving, wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. And Lord, we stand here tonight humbled, broken, assured, and joyful because of our Lord Jesus. Please fill our minds, stretch our minds, warm our hearts with wonderful truths about who you are. In Jesus' name.